Before we start today's show, we have a very special announcement. We are so excited to finally announce that the next FinTech Insider After Dark, naturally, this time it has a 2020 twist. We've gone truly digital, and on the 25th of August, which is tomorrow, uh, we are hosting an edition entirely online, bringing the full After Dark experience straight to your laptop or phone or whatever other screen you want to watch us on. No matter where you are in the world, you can tune into this live recording of our podcast and mingle with us after the show. There's still time to grab your place. Visit bit.ly forward slash digital after dark. That's bit.ly digital after dark. Book a spot and join us. All right, let's start the show. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Fintech funding as Robinhood's valuation grows again. Form 3 and Abito also get funding. And BCR Pool E is awarded to five UK fintechs. And we've got one heck of an unfinally this week. City accidentally paid $900 million in error to Revlon, and now they want it back. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 455 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by uh, this wonderful chap called David Preer. How are you doing, David? Super good. Been a, a very busy week. Um, I have to say, it's got to the, one of those ones where I was actually shocked it's Thursday. Like, it mm-hmm. feels like this this week has just sort of disappeared. So, uh, but having a lot of fun, which is good. Fun in the sun still. Yeah, the sun's back and there's so much fintech happening. And as normal, we are joined remotely by some incredible guests making a welcome return is the one and only Caroline Plum, who's CEO at Fluidly. Welcome back, Caroline. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. A bit like David, I can't believe it's Thursday. It feels like this week has had 15 days in it. But that's good because there's so many awesome things happening. Um, I can't believe it's August. It's like this year has had so many months in it. <laughs> this is the longest March ever. Um, <laughs> and making a FinTech Insider debut, we have the one and only Adam Molson, who's CCO at Form 3. Welcome to the show, Adam. How are you doing? Thanks, Simon. Uh, great, thanks. And nice to, to be here with you guys. Nice to have you on, sir. Know you for a good while. And uh, Form 3 have some news, and we'll come to that in a little bit. The first story this week, though, we have to cover it, Robinhood. Uh, story comes from CNBC, and uh, venture capital investors are betting big on Robinhood as they've boosted their valuation to $11.2 billion. Uh, apparently, as the pandemic-plagued year has people stuck at home, younger investors are jumping into trading the stock market and seeing the fastest Wall Street recovery in history uh, has seen investors pile in. The trading startup announced more than $200 million Series G funding round on Monday, its third major investment in just five months. Robinhood and its publicly traded peers such as TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, E-Trade have all seen record customer growth in 2020, helped by new traders' enthusiasm for uh, stocks such as Tesla, Square, Virgin Galactic, and many, many others. Uh, Robinhood offers most trades for free and makes money off the customer order flow and a premium paid subscription service, but it declined to say if it was profitable. Its average client age is 31, and its latest funding round would apparently go towards investing in its core product and customer experience. As we know, uh, Robinhood has had some outages to deal with volume. Uh, If you are interested in the whole subject, uh, the last show we put out, episode 454, is all about digital investing, so do check that out. Um, David, what were your thoughts when you saw this headline? 11.2 billion, that's a a lot of cash. 
I mean, if, if your company's worth 11.2 billion and you can't confirm whether you make profit or not, I'm a bit worried about that. I'll be honest with you. Like, it, it seems like a, a strange setup. I mean, the other thing that just jumps out at me on this is what are they doing with 200 million? Like, is this is a, this is a, relatively low it's meant to be set up as a low cost alternative platform uh, to all of the those big players in that space so what the hell do you need 200 million pounds for to to develop that out and move it forward i mean I, I can only presume they must be looking at potentially geographical expansion for kind of moving out on these things and i mean potentially we talked about it a lot on the show but the the regulatory burden of doing something you know pan us is is very significant but uh, but even still yeah i mean i, I go back to my first point 11.2 billion and you can't confirm whether you are or are not making profit or not that um seems a bit strange to me there's there's definitely a a bubble waiting to pop on this one caroline thoughts i mean i think if you're not confirming whether you are or aren't making profit you probably aren't um (laughs) and uh i guess the question is uh, are they profitable in the customer segments they've had some time and is it really just the recent cohorts that are and the customer cost of customer acquisition that the uh, 200 million dollars is, is going towards i think what's really interesting as well they you know they trade the public markets and what we've seen is a big disparity between private valuations and public valuations lately so the question is if they can do these very uh very high private valuations what does that mean eventually when they when they do go public and where's that going to take it Indeed. We saw, uh, I think we covered a couple of weeks ago, that uh, they're actually exiting the UK. They said they were going to come, but now yeah. they're not coming to the UK. Uh, we know they've had a lot of um, platform issues. Adam, do you agree that with the profitability question here? Is it, or is it platform stuff? What's the funding for? Um, well, I, I guess um, the, the conclusions that have been reached, they sound logical, uh, obviously. Um, but I, maybe a, a dimension of this is, is taking funding while you can. Hmm. Um, you know, who, who knows how much longer that kind of size funding would be available to them and, and to many other firms for that matter. Um, so if, if it's available and you can make your investors comfortable for your long-term strategy, it, it may be that that's what they bought into. Um, I think a dimension of this, this kind of sector, um, there's a massive part of education um, that's missing from society as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know that firm particularly well, but you know, if they had a role to play in terms of improving the education across, you know, general population, whether that's in the US or other markets, um, they can certainly play a much more trusted role than many other financial service providers. And, and I would expect that to be a kind of people thing, um, and that can be quite costly. So, don't know if that's their strategy, but you know. No, that education point is such an interesting one, Adam, isn't it? Uh, We saw several months ago, um, there was the unfortunate story of a chap who uh, committed suicide after uh, not realizing where they were. They had a lot of leveraged positions and the the importance of education in these things is absolutely massive for unsophisticated investors. And we've even seen um, the SEC come out and make noise uh, about this space. So, uh, is there a is there a regulatory challenge here, maybe, or or you know, how, what are your thoughts on educations, David? I mean, it's interesting. You know, it sort of points out in the the content that the the average age of their customers is thirty one for investors. I mean, obviously, the U.S. market is much more predisposed for investing in stocks, isn't it? But but actually, that as a customer base. I mean, again, we judge it, and always we we sort of get the numbers that they're externalized. But actually, there is a there's a group of savvy investors tightening up their belts in this period of time who think that this is a good enough, big enough bet 
uh, at uh, uh, you know putting another two hundred million into it. So they must be seeing some sign of uh, opportunity on revenue or build or uh, an exit in the not too distant future. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. But you know we, we've said this with a few things in the in the past. Um, you know if it's not an IPO as, as Caroline says, then I mean are they almost pricing themselves out of being potentially bought? Um, I think last time we said that. Visa bought plaid. Um, so uh, let's see what happens in a couple of weeks in terms of who picks up Robin Hood. Yeah, God, you got you got form there, David. That's for sure. There's there's definitely something about that. Um, kind of uh, these numbers are massive, Caroline. But do you think there's uh, there is something to this education and regulation piece? I think certainly. I mean, what they've done brilliantly is bring a product set that's been aimed at a different market or has traditionally been traded by an exclusive group who haven't had access, and they've really democratized it and made it free and accessed a different younger customer base and i think they do fractional share trading as well right so that gives people the ability to hold the stocks that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford and i think um and yeah i have a kind of portfolio risk and spread of that risk so i do think there's you know, it's great they've brought it to a much bigger audience but that obviously goes hand in hand with the responsibility to bring education there particularly when you've got some of the sophisticated products that have a lot of leverage in them um where you have the you know you could lose a lot of money on those and we, they've seen the consequences of that that fractional shares is such an interesting point isn't it because um an amazon share costs three thousand two hundred and ninety four dollars at current prices like if you can only buy one of those you need a lot of cash for your yeah. first share buying and actually you know they've they've gained tremendous value adam do you think there's something about the like a once in a generation buying opportunity when the market dips 40 percent, and this was just the easiest product to use for, for a lot of people um Maybe, or maybe it's just a lot less sophisticated than that. And people are stuck at home thinking about their futures and the spare bit of cash that they've got by not buying an expensive train ticket. They've decided to put it into, you know, some stocks and shares. Um, it, it, you know, it's certainly over lockdown. We've been speaking to friends and family playing games over over the evenings and we've been talking about investments and we never, never used to do that before. So it could be it could be less sophisticated. Well, bizarrely, over in the US, obviously, there's the stimulus check, isn't there? So uh, I think they're just facing into potentially another another round of that. So uh, the whole of the America might have another thousand dollars to uh, to invest in uh, something or other. So uh, they might see some more customers as well, Simon. There was a great episode of Planet Money uh, in which uh, one lady talked about taking her stimulus check and putting it in um, Hertz, the car rental company, stock. This is a company that had just gone bankrupt, uh, and then actually it, the uh, the stock 10xed. And there is speculation that that was on the back of Robinhood traders uh, who were all buying this from communities, from tips, from friends. And of course, that that thousand uh, dollars becomes ten thousand dollars. But interestingly, the moral of the story at the end of the show, they ask her, would she ever do that again, and she said no. Um, um, and, she, and she actually really needs that money and it's become really, really valuable. So uh, important lessons there for sure. What was the game, Simon? Um, sad, sad as we are at 11FS, it feels like a million million years ago, but me, you and a few of the other people who work at 11FS were playing a board game that was basically oh. set out to teach you about stocks and trading, wasn't it? And I got absolutely spanked at it, didn't I? But, Cash um, flow. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good game, actually. The idea is that uh, you're supposed to, you've got an income and you get different incomes and you get to make different investments or sometimes the luck of the door dice is you get a doodad, which is basically you buy a car or you buy a hi-fi. And the way to win the game is to avoid the doodads and to to make sure you you get the the sustainable yield throughout um, for several rounds around the platform. It's a really good game, actually. Sadly, I ended up with lots of doodads and no stocks. Um, <laughs> but but the irony of it, because I took such of a pu- 
pummeling. Uh, and afterwards, I went and bought some Tesla stock. So uh, it turned out pretty well. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. it's a really really good game. I, I, I genuinely, for anybody listening, I'd, I'd highly advise having a play with it because um, it gets it people into that thinking about that long term, short term gain principle, and it's it's really interesting. It is. It'll be interesting to see the market react to it. I'm going to move us to the next story, though. Uh, next one comes from Finextra, and uh, this is about Form 3, raising $33 million with support from Nationwide and Lloyds. Um, so Lloyds Banking Group, Nationwide, and 83 North have contributed $33 million in a new funding round to cloud-native payments technology house Form 3. Uh, the shareholders join existing investors, Draper Esprit, uh, and Angel Co-Fund, and Barclays. Penny Hughes, CBE, also joined Form 3 board as a non-exec director. Penny's previously been a director at Coca-Cola, Vodafone, Reuters, and more recently a non-exec director at RBS and the chair of Aston Martin. Form 3 was founded in 2016 by a team of payment industry veterans from Deutsche, Barclays, Swift, Barclay Card, and Gain Capital Payments. And following a £13 million Series B funding in November 2018, the firm has trebled in size and increased its annual recurring revenue by 160%. Adam, Congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit more about this from your perspective? What, is, what does this mean for you? What does it mean for, for Form 3? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Yeah, really exciting week for us. And uh, yeah, being there from the very beginning, um, uh, quite amazing to see how we've developed as a company. Um, yeah, essentially, we, we've got to a position where um, we're, we're a market leader in cloud-native payment technology, um, certainly in the UK. Um, this was an opportunity for us to um, bringing some additional investors and funding um, to support our growth for the future. Um, we've been much more successful in the tier one bank space than I think we we thought we would have been. You know, if we'd have guessed even a year ago, I think we would have expected the tier one bank space to take a bit more time. Um, but actually, it's it's moved pretty quickly. So that's a really good thing. And we wanted to have some of the biggest banks, um, certainly in the UK market and even in the world, go with us on that journey and support our growth. Um, so, yeah. Very happy and delighted. It's um, been really phenomenal to see the growth. I mean, Simon, I remember me and you sitting down with Michael in level 39 in oh, maybe late 2015, early 2016. And him the saying, early 2016, like, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to try and take these guys on. It's going to, you know, just based on simplicity and really sort of bring into the market something that's there. And like, yeah, fast forward to now and you guys have done it. So uh, congratulations for all the success. Thanks very much. Caroline, um, to the point about the tier one banks, uh, do you think this, uh, are you surprised that tier one banks are embracing cloud in the same way? Or is it something that you're starting to see as well in, in your own business and, and across the industry? I mean, I think if you're not embracing cloud technology at this point, then I mean, there really is something uh, <laughs> a bit wrong. And I, um, and I think so that obviously is extended to the tier one banks as well. So no, I don't think a big surprise. Um, but I think what's interesting to see is um, these increasing partnerships um, and investment by the tier one banks uh, into fintechs. I think that's a really good sign. Yeah, absolutely. David, um, I'm interested in the names of some of the banks here. You've got Lloyds Banking Group, Nationwide, Barclays, um, as, as all as investors now. And of course, we know we've got ClearBank out there as like the cloud native clearing bank. Does this look a little bit to you like um, the big banks sort of getting into um, payments infrastructure in a different way? Or, or what do you think the psychology is here of why they would invest in something like this? Um, I, I mean, Adam's going to have to nod or shake his head and sort of confirm or deny these things as 
I go along because um, you guys listening to this in a podcast won't, won't be able to do it. But I mean, from Lloyd's Banking Group's perspective, obviously, they've already announced uh, and shown an investment in Thought Machine, which is a you know, cloud-based core banking system. You know, you start investing in cloud-based payment systems. Um, you know, it looks to me like somebody might be piecing together a next generation stack that they may or may not be thinking about moving the entirety of the bank to. That would be one hypothesis. Um, Adam's brilliant poker face, like not shaking his head or nodding or, or anything. So, um, but for me, it's like actually this is prudent investment from big incumbent organizations who really want to not only embrace it, but actually invest in the type of technology that actually might be the thing that moves them to that that next generation. So um seems really smart. Lloyd's do it um Lloyd's do it sort of point to point. You know, it feels when they do investments, it feels very strategic, which is why I would sort of go go down that route. Obviously nationwide have got more of a portfolio investment with everything that they're doing through the venture side of things. But with LBG doing it in this route, I'd say I'd be surprised if they don't pop up in let's say six months time using these types of technologies in a major way. So um, that's pretty exciting, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, there's some of the background in terms of what's happening in payments in the UK, um, just a huge amount of change. There's been a lot of talk and speculation around the new payments architecture for a number of years. Um, that's going to be um, moving forward materially just next year. Um, if you want to be ahead of that as a financial institution, um, you need to have been planning that some time ago uh, and executing on one or multiple strategies. Um, yeah, so I think that's one of the major drivers. Um, clearly, like I said, we're, we're the, the leader in the UK for cloud-native payment tech. We're, we're in a good spot. And Adam, remind everybody what the new payments architecture is. If anybody hasn't come across it, it might just be worth doing doing the 30 seconds on that. Yeah, um, so the, the top level is, is uh, transforming the national infrastructure that the entire country uses to move money between bank accounts. Um, and so the, the CHAPS RTGS system uh, that the Bank of England operate um, is being transformed. That's the first piece. Uh, the BACS and faster payment system, so the real-time payment system, and then the kind of bulk payment system BACS is, are both being transformed. Um, the BACS system's pretty old system. It's a three-day payment cycle. I mean, essentially, the, both the regulator, uh, the central bank, and a number of other parties have been... Um, uh, working together with the industry to open up the market, um, make the the whole payment system for the country much more efficient uh, and economical, and stimulate more competition. Uh, ultimately, benefiting consumers. That's, that's what it's all about. So, enabling competition, doing things differently and faster. Hmm. I think it's it's really exciting because I uh, okay this is this sentence is going to sound really boring but I'm really excited by it but it's like the dialogue is moving on so much it's not about innovation it's about big incumbent organisations have got insane cost structures that actually they really need to solve for um, and it's things like this it, it is cloud more broadly but cloud payment systems and much more efficient uh, you know middleware like everything through that back office that fundamentally just starts to change really what their cost structuring is so. So it's exciting to see these things coming through, and and actually, like I say, it's it's amazing to see how quickly they're being adopted as well, which is um, you know w- wonderful to see. Caroline, any, any last thoughts on the role of the regulator in all of this sort of thing, and and uh, and the maturity of uh, of fintech broadly? 
I mean, I think the main observation really is that how forward thinking the regulator's been in the UK market more generally over a really long um, period of time. I know in the videos that you did um, celebrating kind of a decade of fintech, the sort of uh, heroes from the system that the regulator featured. And I do think that the FCA has been particularly forward thinking from its sort of sandbox initiatives across the board to its sort of relatively light touch regulation. And that has been a really good thing for innovation in the market. Yeah, I think you've got to look at the central bank as well. I mean, you know, Mark Carney, uh, prior to his departure, was making public speeches about the central bank adopting open source technology and public cloud technology. Um, and they deployed that at scale in, in some recent projects. Also, the EBA, um, you know, covering all the guidelines for outsourcing regulation, outsourcing guidelines for the entire European banking market. You know, they've, they've now issued two revisions of those outsourcing guidelines very specific to help banks and, and regulated institutions collaborate better and safer with uh, specialist third parties. And, do you know what? I think the, the interesting thing on the regulatory side of things is the, the narrative feels to be shifting a little bit, though, because I, I think the while the FCA have been, and, and actually the Bank of England, PRA, have been very, very pro challenge a bank for a long period of time obviously all of the capital requirements that are coming through right now feels like they're you know starting to sort of get big boy big girl versions of the regulations to kind of really deal with and actually i think this is where the opportunity is for the b2b players because it feels like the favoritism is the wrong word but the good conditions is now really starting to favor b2b fintech players within this mix and actually all of the opportunities to bring those things to big incumbent organizations which again i think is a great thing because it's the old um innovators dilemma thing right if you if we can really finally couple innovation with scale then actually that adam to your point that's where really the customer is going to benefit so much more significantly than just a small fintech would mm. increasing competition is very very useful but once things get big then they they get the serious attention of the regulators and uh, once things get big and they have a balance sheet they they get really 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 serious attention and so thinking about how balance sheet management really plays and whether fintechs can do that's going to be an interesting space uh, to watch evolve totally agree on b2b fintech which speaking of which caroline b2b fintech uh, nice place to be um, yeah, it is a good place at the moment. Um, I was actually just going to add to that, though, in terms of the regulator. Uh, I mean, interesting to see what will happen with Wirecard and, you know, and what the fallout with that will be. I mean, I think it's it's such a potential um, issue, obviously not necessarily the FCA, but a regulatory failure potentially. Uh, and so is that going to now mean kind of once bitten, twice shy? You know, is that going to continue that light touch or is it actually going to change the nature of regulation? Um, yeah. It was really interesting to see the reaction of that. I know we've obviously covered this a, a few different times, but the reaction to it, I think actually, you know, anybody from an uh, purely from an architectural perspective is going to start looking at optionality because, I mean, if you look at what Curve did and their ability to, you know, spend four days to be able to switch in and switch out a, a different provider, I think increasingly people in their architecture are going to look for, you know, this is, this is where big incumbent banks are always terrible. It's like, actually, they buy a thing, customize it for two years, realize it does exactly what they had before, and now they've got a gigantic operating cost and can't manage it anymore. So the idea of taking something out and putting something else in is like, it's impossible, you know? Um, so, you know, I think increasingly having that standardized set of architecture, set of capabilities will mean that big banks will, it will start becoming normal. I mean, they've done it for a long time. They've had Visa cards and MasterCards to give customers optionality, but now they need it actually within their own architecture to 
contain it essentially it's moving up the stack from the rails isn't it to the capabilities products and out into the intelligent services layer that whole space is starting to become like rather than the bank trying to craft all of it itself from from different bits of vendors um, and then the fintechs because that was standardized it creates this really interesting challenge that we're going to have to watch wow it's an interesting time to be in fintech um uh, we are going to have to take a quick break and be back very very shortly Banking as a service is deconstructing the banking stack. It's enabling brands to embed finance much more easily and tailor financial products to specific customer needs. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams. Download our report for a comprehensive, no BS view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service, all lowercase. Check it out on your phone now. Fintech Insider listeners, we of course still need you. Uh, if you listen to the show, whether this is your 455th uh, or you just dip in and dip out, we need your suggestions to help shape the future of the show. We want to know what you like, what you don't, where we can improve, uh, how we can make this podcast better for you, because uh, we do want to make it much, much better. So please do help us out. Take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash Fintech Insider Survey. That's bit.ly Fintech Insider Survey. Thanks and on with the show. And we're back. So the next story comes from AltFi, and this is about the BCR Pool E. First winners are announced. So uh, the first awardees for the uh, British Competition Remedies Pool E fund were revealed this morning with 5 million and 2.5 million grants awarded to six different fintechs. Among the 2.5 million grant winners were Fractal Labs, uh, Untied, Kodat, Esbob, and Previse, while the larger grants uh, of £5 million went to Funding Exchange and Onfido. Pool E was created out of funds returned by Metro and Nationwide once they could not deliver their commitments for which they had been granted the money the first time around, putting £100 million back in the pot for new initiatives. The BCR said it received a total of 92 applications from 67 applicants in the first stage of Pool E, which covered just £20 million of the total 100. Next month, the remaining £80 million will be awarded through two £10 million tranches and one £25 million and one £35 million grant, with the awardees due to be announced during the week of 21st of September. So to find out more, we spoke to Peter Lord, who's the CEO of Kodak, to tell us about his experience. Let's hear from him now. At Kodak, we're building core infrastructure that lets banks and fintechs plug into their small business customers and the software they use, granting them seamless access to real-time customer data. We believe that our core product is very well aligned with the purpose of the funding, to facilitate the commercialisation of financial technology that is relevant to SMEs. And we used our business plan and our updated product roadmap to demonstrate this to BCR during the application process. The £2.5 million grant we were awarded in this latest round of funding builds on the original £5 million we received back in 2019. Kodak was the only applicant to be successful in both rounds, which is hugely encouraging for us. We've also played a crucial role in providing faster access to finance where banks have deployed Kodak to eliminate data collection, including as part of recent government coronavirus loan schemes. We're really pleased to have been recognised by BCR and are very much looking forward to delivering on all of the commitments we've set out. Fantastic. Well done to the guys at Coda. Um, Caroline, as a previous Remedies winner, what do you think of this new pool? I think it's really good to see. I mean, congratulations to all the winners. And I think it's great that they did award um, Pool E to some smaller businesses again in smaller fragments, because I think they, they could have just taken that award and returned it back to the sort of A and B pools. But I think the fact that it went um, almost distributed over a larger base was was really, really good. 
Um, I think what's really interesting as well is that the sort of the winners that have picked have often gone to infrastructure. Um, you know, there's, there's, you've got a couple of players in there, um, like Provise or Factor, that are going to face you know brands that face um, the market more directly. But I think you've got a lot of um, sort of fabric type plays here, whether that's on Fido or Easy Bob, that are going to kind of I hope take friction out of the whole market. And I think that's really interesting. And probably this pool is the is where BCR had the opportunity to do that. The kind of A, B, C pools are a bit more prescribed, um, although perhaps I hope that in C they might go for, again for more infrastructure plays. But I think um, the, the nature of the projects chosen hopefully will have transformational impact across the whole market more than just the brands that want it. David, what are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. As, as Caroline says, it's great to see more of those sort of fabric plays really sort of getting more of that investment in it. And it feels like, um, again, you know, back to our narrative a second ago, really the the capital here over the next, you know, three to five years will really sort of change that landscape of who is providing those services to those organizations. So, um, and actually, I mean, a lot of these organizations have already got pretty significant um, customer bases, haven't they? You know, obviously, um, you know, people like Easy Bob have uh, worked with RBS. You know, you've got, uh, I mean, Fractal Labs are in various different organizations at the moment. Obviously, Onfido appear to be pretty much everywhere at this stage, don't they? Which is which is good, both inside financial services and much broader than that as well. So, you know, when we're... When we keep talking about bank as a service, then you know filling out those slices with really good options for people to do interesting things, then uh, it feels like uh, it feels like we're, the the future is getting closer every day, doesn't it? If you look inside the banking stack as it used to exist, it it, it really is getting much much more modular. There's a great fintech that does just about everything, and the art is putting how do you put them together and how do you build a service out of that that customers really want. That's it's changed completely from what it was, David. I think as as Caroline's saying here as well is like actually, you know, this money was initially meant to go to Metro and Nationwide to build like another SME bank. But actually what we're gonna get is, you know, ten to fifteen players accelerating their growth to create much, much, much more than that, really. So it's um yeah, exciting to see. I mean it's been a it still has been quite a funny old process, hasn't it, everything that's been going on with the BCR process, but it's uh it's good to kind of nearly get to the end of that one and good to start realizing some of those benefits isn't it yeah and and if you are a u.s listener and, and bcr is one of those jargon words that you always wonder about is this if you sort of wind the clock back it was such a weird uh quirk of history of what happened here i think it goes back to one of the uk banks rbs not being able to fulfill one of its commitments to the government and the way that uh the government decided to deal with that was uh or, or, or the, the bank suggested that they would create a fund that would be awarded to its competitors and to fintechs to create competition in the marketplace and and it's really done that it's created this whole hive of activity it has i mean albeit a very long period of time you know we're talking about the fallout from 2008 the creation of williams and glynn rbs's inability to actually divest a part of its organization and 12 years later a bunch of fintechs are getting some money so you know it is a uh, it's definitely a documentary in the making, isn't it? But um, maybe we'll do the wire card one first and then come to this one next day. Adam, what are your thoughts on all of these small uh, small fintechs getting funding? Um, yeah, I think, uh, as you said, a, a number of them are specialist companies that enable other financial institutions um, improve what they do for the end customer. Um, and as we said earlier, you know, some of their clients will be fintechs, but some of them will be large banks as well. So... I think by supporting these kinds of kinds of firms, it's kind of powering a lot more, you know, back it back in a lot more bets. Let's say, um, yeah. 
we know that as we look forward to the uh, to the next round for the for the eighteen million, uh, we know that some of the names that have applied include Starling, Curve, Tide, and Clearbank. What are what are the thoughts on those names, um, Caroline, David? Do you do you have any thoughts on on those names? Is it a surprise to see them? I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether the BCR are prepared to double down on some of their earlier winners to that extent, or whether they feel compelled to spread it around a bit more. And I think it's a yeah, difficult challenge for them. Um, it takes so much money to build a bank that actually maybe concentrating um, in a few places rather than spreading too thin. You know, arguably you could see a lot of sense in that. On the other hand, um, I do think that Paul C, the kind of payments and lending pool, which has probably got a little bit more flexibility to it, as prescribed to versus Pool A and Pool B, um, where you have to have an existing or you have to build a current like a business current account offer. I wonder whether they might place a few more bets in that pool uh, in payments and lending and back into the infrastructure area that might benefit the whole market. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah, it's where can the cash go? Can it benefit the whole market or can it benefit just one or two players? And uh, interesting as well, do you think that given that some of the some of the cash that's been returned has been returned by big incumbent brands uh, who had tried to do something and not? So uh, this is going to be an interesting one to watch, Shio. So the next story comes from IBI Insights. It's about WeLab Bank reporting over 10,000 accounting applications in 10 days. And of course, as we know, WeLab Bank is a Hong Kong-based virtual bank, and it's fully open for just that 10 days. But uh, we actually have a cutaway. Uh, We're going to hear from Adrian Say, who's the chief executive at WeLab Bank in Hong Kong, to tell us more. We have built WeLab Bank in just over a year and launched it to Hong Kong public as of end July. Our goal is to help our customers to take control of their financial journey and have fun while growing their money. Since launch, we received overwhelming responses from the market. The total number of applications already surpassed 10,000 in just 10 days after our public launch. Let me share some interesting observations on consumer behavior so far. First, Our customers like our products, and therefore over 60% of them have tried out more than two of our products. The most interesting observation is that being tech-savvy is not limited to younger generation. Our oldest customer so far is 83 years old, who opened a bank account with us in under five minutes. In summary, we launched Willa Bank to provide financial inclusion so that our customers can enjoy 100% digital banking service anytime and anywhere, especially during this pandemic period. All right. Thank you very much to Adrian. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, some interesting stats in there. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, look, startups always get a bit lambasted for going after the millennial generation. So it's good to see, uh, you know, uh, an 83-year-old opening up in a bank account in under five minutes. That's uh, pretty pretty impressive. I mean, the, the, the Hong Kong market for challenges is getting pretty... Uh, significant now, isn't it? It's not just the the HSBCs of and the the sort of old, more fashion sort of organisations out there, but some really really interesting companies. Asian fintech, more broadly, I think, is really really blowing up. So it's uh, good to see more of these things really sort of come to the market and uh, serving a really broad audience. And this is big tech doing finance. Um, so there was always that question of will big tech come to finance? And we know in China it's happened. Now it's happening in Hong Kong in in quite a different way. Um, Adam, what are your thoughts when you see this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I don't really have a view about the the size of the the market in Hong Kong, but you know, launching a, a new digital um, uh, FI in the UK or Europe, you know, we we've had a number of customers we've supported. They tend to kind of go out there with um, initial subscriptions, fifty odd thousand before they launch, and then there tends to be a pretty gradual controlled ramp up. So, 
I think I'd just take 10,000 as an indication of interest. Um, I think a sensible business would want to control the, the rate at which they brought in new customers. So hopefully they'll continue to grow. I, I don't know if you guys know if the, the uh, WeLab guys have got a, a virtual banking license in Hong Kong. Were they one of the successful uh, companies? They were. They were actually alongside um, people like Mox with Standard Charter, one of the earliest ones to to really sort of get the support from HKMA to, to sort of progress on these things. I mean, as, as Simon said, it's really interesting to start seeing non-existing banking players come into these things because as more and more capability is created in those, you know, those end-to-end journeys, I really think where these guys have, have started, you know, where we lab have really sort of started with this is is interesting, but it's sort of what they do next and where they then really start to embed financial services and everything else. Because I mean, you spend any time in Hong Kong, technology is integrated into everything. Um, I think we talked a couple of weeks ago on InsureTech Insider of a uh, a copier in Hong Kong that can give you your life insurance instantly, which like blew my tiny little mind, you know. So, so I think um, these guys really starting to look for those end to end opportunities with where financial services fits in is going to be really really interesting. But it's not just obviously. Um, Hong Kong, you know, obviously everything that's happened with virtual banking over in Singapore as well. It really feels like as a region, uh, if you can call such a gigantic uh, a space of, uh, of of people and land, just a single region is uh, is really sort of coming alive. So it's exciting to see. There are rumours of an Indonesian virtual banking licence coming. We know Malaysia is looking at it. We know um, many other countries are as well. Uh, Adam, do you have any thoughts on this story? I've got an observation. I was looking at uh, McKinsey um, annual uh, payments report um, this week, uh, 2019. It's astonishing to see that the the payments market globally generates $1.9 trillion in revenue. Uh, The fastest growing region, as you say, is is Asia. Um, And it's continued to grow faster than any other region um, over the last six or seven years. It's phenomenal. You know, any financial institution investing in digital and, and then going cross-border, I think that's where the, the biggest prize will come from. And starting that journey in Hong Kong seems to make a lot of sense to me. Mm. I think it leads the way, doesn't it, in terms of frequency of payments, but the small nature of the payments, doesn't it, which is really, really interesting. We've seen almost the... Um, I mean, when we've we've done a, a lot of work out there looking at various different jobs to be done frameworks, and actually, if you take in your sort of Western view of actually how transactions or how people use financial instruments uh, in you know Europe, the US, uh, it is just completely different. You know, uh, micro transactions, not in a financial inclusion sense, but just in a day to day life, is is a constant stream of. Um, you know, eating out and splitting bills and all these different things, it, it just works in a, a very different way, even though the, you know, the the instruments look very similar. So it's, um, it's a very, very, you know, interesting growing region. And as you say, from a purely from a volume of uh, transactions and a volume of people perspective, it can only become more and more important for any business looking to scale. Absolutely. Alrighty, next story uh, is from Fenextra, and this is about our good friends at Habito who have raised £35 million to continue to revolutionize home buying. Um, So uh, they confirmed their £35 million investment as part of their Series C fundraise. Habito offers a suite of services intended to take the pain out of buying a new house, including its own mortgage products, a digital brokerage service, and an end-to-end home buying package. Uh, The convertible loan note was also matched by the UK government's Future Fund, 
set up to help mitigate the coronavirus effect on the country's startup ecosystem. It brings the total raised by Habito to just over 63 million since launching in 2016. We heard from our good friend Dan Hedegetti, uh, the CEO at Habito, to tell us more. Hello, 11FS. It's Daniel Hegarty here from Habito. I'm in Scotland on my summer staycation, so sadly can't be with you on the show this week. But I wanted to share our news that we have just closed our Series C, raising £35 million from Augmentum Fintech, SBI Group and Mojo Capital. We've also joined the growing number of UK firms who've secured investment from the Treasury's Future Fund. As you'll hopefully know, we're on a mission to make mortgages easier for anyone who wants to own a home in the UK. This new funding will help us to continue to digitize the entire application process, bring new types of mortgages to the market, and develop new home buying services, like Habito Plus, which brings a buyer's mortgage application, conveyancing needs, and surveys all under one roof. Thank you for your continued support of Habito, and of course, if anyone listening needs a mortgage, please come and see us at Habito.com or tweet me at dh underscore Habito. Shout out to Dan. Thank you so much for giving us that soundbite and well done to everybody at Habito in tough times. Uh, can I just point out that, uh, Dan, if you ever don't want to be a CEO, you can definitely be a jazz DJ. That was smooth, my friend. <laughs> you, you can't not like Dan Hegarty, can you? Like he's just, he, he is a he is a smooth human being. And, and I think it comes through on the brand as well. I don't know if you guys have seen the uh, the latest TV adverts that uh, Habito have kind of put out, but they, they are very, uh, seem very in his sort of brand and, and sort of the, the nature of him as an, an individual. So it's, uh, but it's good to see these guys doing so well. It's, uh, it's obviously been quite an opaque market for such a long period of time, hasn't it? And uh, the process that they go through and the help that they give customers is, is really, really great. You know, I've been through it myself and it, it was very, very different from the uh, previous experience I've had buying a mortgage. So uh, good to see these guys doing so well. Yeah, the digital brokerage front end, which is what most people know Habito for, has completely taken out massive amounts of pain on on the front end. And great brokers were always worth their weight in gold, but doing it digital through a chat interface has has really revolutionized the market. And now they are getting into their own uh, mortgages, of course. Um, Caroline, any, any thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to see the the broker, the aggregator, you know, bringing out their own product, and you know, you wonder whether that has they've used some of their experience in understanding the market in you know across multiple products and the the underwriting criteria there, and started to look at how they might offer something um, alongside those. So I think that's really interesting in terms of the fundraise and you know potentially what they're using the funds for. Uh, Adam, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting space of uh, the world that we live in. Um, where, where do you live and, and where will you live in the next 12 months? I think a lot of people are asking themselves that. Um, a lot of companies are embracing uh, remote working. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, do I really need to live in the city or do I want to live in the city? Uh, and, and then there's firms all over the, the world that have already built sizable platforms to enable you know, property uh, buying and selling. So uh, there's a firm called Pexer in Australia, a technology platform company called Leveris in Ireland. Um, you know, recognizing that the more standardized the processes and the easier the process is to do something as painful as moving moving a house, and the better that is for the economy. Indeed, and in the US, Better.com is is a unicorn now. It's a, it's a more than billion dollar company. Uh, David, I do wonder if this is the type of area that at some point Google will stray into, though, because um, I do think, I mean, they're. 
I've said this before, is like they do, um, you know, the whole mission of organizing the world's information, like brokerage is essentially that, isn't it? It's essentially being able to tie into all of these systems and consolidate and bring back the best opportunity for those things. They already do it fantastically well for flights and all sorts of different stuff. So, you know, I wonder if this might be a model that while they're not going to go, you know, whole hog and build a bank, this type of front-end integration and uh, uh, an aggregation might be a play that at some point they would sort of come back and look at again. But uh, they're very busy doing all sorts of other stuff at this stage, aren't they? So uh, I'm sure they'll get around to it at some point. I wonder, though, if it's a little harder uh, in something like mortgages, but have been traditionally so paper-based and perhaps one of the industries has been much slower to, to transform. I think it's something like Habito's done all the hard yards in doing those integrations. And, you know, I, I imagine there's been quite a lot of manual concierge in that process for many years. And I think that's going to be hard um, for someone like Google to replicate. It's a real moat for them now. Yeah, I think, like you say, Habito have had that trouble. And I mean, obviously, somebody like Pension B as well, right? You're you're trying to create a digital interface into a very, very analog world, aren't you? So, uh, yeah, it's a really fair point. Uh, there's something interesting about the future platform aggregation question. Like the, we're going through a disaggregation phase of fintech, where all of the things that banks did, there's a really nice B two B API for it somewhere, and there's a really nice little fintech that does just that bit really, really well. So it begs the natural question: Where does it get reaggregated? And and Google might be a logical place, and, and platforms might be a logical place. But then, would a beta want to play inside that? You know, sort of. I think about the App Store methodology or something like that habito can still exist in that world and, and all of these intelligent service sort of providers can still exist i think about plum and Moneybox and all of those sorts of things it could be through a google interface it might be on a bank's balance sheet somewhere but these providers in the middle could still be eking out these apps and service experiences for it in an interesting way hmm. it's interesting isn't it I, I wonder if i wonder if many of those players their aspiration is to be distributed by another player from an interface perspective or or whether they're you know, we, we've already seen, you know, beachheads turn into more diversified offering from a product perspective, isn't it? I mean, Revolut don't really position themselves as a travel card anymore, do they? But mm-hmm. that's definitely where they sort of pitch themselves to start with. So you'll find many of these players have just picked the bit that they think maybe they can create differentiation for now in the same way as like Nationwide start, started with mortgages, didn't it? And now it does all sorts of other stuff because it was good at doing mortgages and that money would allow them to do other things. So um, you know, whether we sort of see these players stick to their, you know, their, their knitting, as it were, mm-hmm. such a British saying, isn't it? I'm sorry, mm-hmm. our international audience, but stick to the thing that they've come into the market and be really good at, or whether they use that to parlay into something else will be uh, yet to be seen, I think. Speaking of the international audience, David did mention the Habito advertising on TV. Uh, it's worth sticking into YouTube if you're in Australia or the US. Do, do, do check it out. It's, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, shout out to those guys. Uh, all right, uh, Adam, any final thoughts before we move on from this one? I just think this is a lot more than data. This is about improving people's lives and you know, companies taking ownership of operational problems. Um, that I think that's where the value is going to be, not, not just about data. Absolutely. Uh, create the experience by thinking a little bit differently about the middle and back office, not just the not just the front end, the shiny front end. Absolutely. All right, we're going to move on as we're getting towards the end of the show, just to round up some of the other stories from around the week that we haven't got the time to really cover in depth, but we had to give some of these a shout out. So, David, do you want to start us off on this? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, first up was a story over on Finextra. So this is TSB to phase out bank branch stuff, which sounds rather dramatic, doesn't it? Uh, TSB is to phase out 929 cashier roles at its branch network in a response to a steeper decline in the customer football during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, yes, people can't leave their house, right? They, they're they not going into branches as much. Uh, affected branch staff were told that they would have to retrain, change roles, or take voluntary redundancy, according to a staff memo. Ironically, the bank's website went dark for some customers on Monday, prompting a bit of a rash of angry Twitter activity as users were then locked out of their accounts. I mean, this is an interesting one. I mean, this con- this constant sort of, you know, when a branch is going to disappear and, uh, you know, are they going to all be replaced by, uh, you know, the internet and robots? Uh, you know, I don't think branch is going to go away anytime soon, but it's interesting that they've seen such a, a steep fall away in it. We actually covered this in episode 448 of Fintech Insider, if you want to go and check that out. But uh, we gave a bit more flavor to uh, where we think branches are going to go. In the future of branches. Um, next story we didn't have a lot of time to cover is from TechCrunch. And this is about Square Cash App testing a new feature, allowing users to borrow up to $200. So, of course, the peer-to-peer payment service from Square is giving select users a way to get short-term loans. The company says it's only testing the feature with about 1,000 users for now, but it can become much more broadly available. Uh, Cash App is starting out by offering loans for any amount between $20 and $200. It'll be expected to pay back the loan in four weeks, along with a flat fee of 5%. If you don't pay back the loan after four weeks, you'll get an additional one-week grace period, after which Square will start adding 1.25% each week. But that 1.25% does not compound. In other words, you don't end up in those payday loan loops if you don't pay it off. You'll also be able to take out an additional loan if you previously defaulted. This one struck me as really, really interesting. Um, they want to get into lending. I guess they have so much space with the the data business they've built around uh, kind of the merchant side. They have a deep understanding of the merchants. They did payments first, then they got into lending. Makes sense that they would do that in retail. They're very heavily used um, by the subprime segment and, and the financially excluded in the US, uh, people who don't have bank accounts and people who have terrible FICO scores. If they can make lending work for this, uh, they're essentially putting payday lenders out of business business if they get this right. I love that it's non-compounding, um, but it's going to be interesting to watch this one. Um, I'm, as everybody knows, a massive fan of Square, so take everything I say with a pinch of salt. Um, all right, David, uh, next story. Yeah, the next one up is, uh, again, over on Finextra. This is Ant Group Plans Consumer Finance Firm. So fintech giant Ant Group is planning to set up a consumer finance company that will offer Chinese people online loans. Ant is in the process of securing a consumer license for the company and will have about $1.2 billion in registered capital. Ant already has a pretty significant holding over uh, financial services in the, the Chinese markets with Alipay, Ant Fortune, Ant Micro Loan, my bank and you know seemingly a pretty uh, big uh, level of, of integrations that they have across the across the board last month the company began the process for dual listing in Hong Kong and Shanghai that would give it a 200 billion dollar valuation which is pretty significant um, I mean this is really interesting because I mean lending is always a, a very sensible step to go into in terms of actually trying to really create the the returns and uh, you know live up to those valuations and and actually with the distribution points that Ant has in all of those uh, with all of their fingers in all of those pies it's going to be fascinating to see how well this does but you can only imagine this being a, an absolute success can't you so it's uh, going to be inter- interesting to see when the the numbers really start coming in of how successful this will be. 
Yeah, Mark Rubenstein uh, did a great uh, teardown of Ant Financial on his Substack. So do check out Mark Rubenstein's net interest blog uh, if you, if you want to know more. All of the, he did the case study, in my opinion, super interesting one to watch. Time for our and finally story, and my goodness, what an and finally story we have for you this week from Payments.com. City wants Revlon lenders to return nine hundred million dollars that was paid in error. Citigroup paid nearly $900 million by mistake to the uh, Revlon lenders due to a clerical error, and it wants its money back. While some of Revlon's lenders returned the cash, others are refusing to return the money City after they received funds from the bank equal to the amount of a Revlon loan plus interest, sources told the news service. Lenders who sued Revlon were surprised to learn that they'd been fully repaid on a loan issued uh, in 2016. City executives had asked for the money back, saying it was paid inadvertently and it was an operational error. Of course, for context, Revlon is involved in a legal dispute with some of its lenders. Uh, one lawsuit accused Revlon of moving valuable brand assets beyond the reach of lenders uh, in order to use them as collateral for creditors. That's a lot of money to give away by mistake. Caroline, what are your thoughts? I mean, I don't know much about this story, but I would just, I mean, even when you think you have a bad day at work, imagine <laughs> being the person that accidentally moved $900 billion. Um, yeah, that is a bad day at the office. I mean, I, I've put one extra zero on a thing before, but like that's that's a lot of extra <laughs> zeros a on a thing, isn't fat it? Finger. It is, yeah. That somebody's key got stuck or something, didn't they? Really, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, payments obviously my thing. It'd be interesting to know if this is City making the mistake or a customer of City making the mistake. You know, requesting that City actually move the money to the wrong account. Um, I'm sure that investigation has been uh, well underway for some time. Um, yeah, but. Um, misdirected payments, something that happens around the world all the time. Um, I guess this one just sounds like a bit more of a juicy story because of the uh, the benefactor of that mistake. Yeah, I mean, I mean, banks are pretty unforgiving with this stuff right now, aren't they? If uh, you know uh, some uh, old lady or old guy has been sort of duped out of sending their life savings to somewhere and done it willingly and purposefully made that payment, I think some of them are starting to get a little bit more um, sort of angry about, well, we're not liable for it. So are they liable, the fact that they accidentally moved all this money around or, or not? But uh, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of lipstick either way, isn't it? So uh, maybe Revlon should do them a deal or something. I don't know. There's something in there for sure. This is, this is a great one. The fat finger errors can cost you 900 million. Who knew? And it's, it's interesting, the whole market uh, has this question about push payments. Adam, as you say, it'll be interesting to watch for sure. All right, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, starting with Caroline? I'm uh, Caroline Plum, which is at Plum on Twitter or at Fluidly. And Adam? Uh, preference is LinkedIn. Um, Adam Molson at Form 3 um, should find me uh, on Twitter uh, at Admo, A-D-M-O-U. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, I guess they're, they're the two of the best places. David? Do you know what? Drop me an email. Send me a nice email, david at 11fs.com. Go crazy. Do it. Send, send David your favorite um, spam emoji um, <laughs> and other things, um, but definitely do. All right. Thank you so much, of course, to our CEO Soundbites from Peter Lord at Kodak, Dan Hegarty at Beto, and Adrian at WeLab for their contributions too. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, do remember to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps us make the show better. Uh, and speaking of making the show better, do give us your thoughts via our super quick survey, bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. That's bit.ly fintech insider survey. 
And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now.